Hello, and welcome to another episode of EdChoice Chats. My name is Mike McShane, and I'm Director of National Research at EdChoice. Today's podcast is part of a new series we're embarking upon called Cool Schools, wherein we will profile passionate educators around the country and the schools that they lead. This podcast series has two goals. Uh, The first is simply celebration. Starting a new school or running a great existing school is hard work. Too often, it's a thankless job. So we want to celebrate people who are trying something new and different and kick the tires on their ventures to uncover lessons that they've learned and can share with other educators around the country. The second goal is to try and stretch folks' mind about what is possible in education. As educational choice supporters, we at EdChoice spend a healthy amount of our time trying to promote educational options that don't exist yet. We push for states to pass laws that create the conditions for great new schools to open and scale, but many people struggle to wrap their minds around exactly what that might look like. In this podcast, we're going to highlight some of those potentialities. With quality school choice programs, innovative models like the ones we talk about here could be coming to a city near you. You know, at the outset, I would like to say that uh, we're not going to try and use this podcast to adjudicate whether or not these are quote-unquote good or bad schools. We're not going to examine their reading and math scores and ask them why their fourth graders aren't up to snuff. We are going to ask about mistakes that they've made, lessons they've learned, advice that they would give, and related questions that should be helpful for anyone listening, even if you're skeptical of their educational model or pedagogical strategy. I'm always on the lookout for more cool schools to profile, so if you know of one of those in your neck of the woods, please let me know about it. So today on the podcast, I am talking to Stephanie Soroki de Garcia, and she runs Seton Education Partners. And Seton is really interesting because it is a Catholic education organization, but that both partners with what we might call traditional Catholic schools to provide blended learning, so having schools kind of rethink themselves as blending learning models, but also operates some charter schools with a faith component offered uh, outside of school hours. So we we get into exactly what that looks like um, in that whole conversation. We also touch on this is controversial, as one might imagine, both from the kind of public school community, but also within the Catholic school community. So we have some time to talk about that as well, which is great. Just a little bit about Seton. You know, it was launched in 2009. It it serves right now about 3,300 students, um, again, spread across both the Catholic schools that do the blended learning model, as well as the the, uh, charter schools, which are located in New York City. Stephanie herself started uh, by doing Teach for America in Oakland. She was a high school English teacher, like myself, something uh, that we share in common. After that, she was a dean's fellow at Harvard Kennedy School. She worked in uh, philanthropy, and as she tells in her story, that's what got her um, kind of sparked to be interested in, in pursuing this, this model. So without further ado, Stephanie Soroki de Garcia of Seton Education Partners. All right, so I think it's probably best if we uh, start at the beginning. So how did Seton Education Partners get started? Ah, divine intervention. <laughs> um, I was working at an organization called the Philanthropy Roundtable, and I was asked to organize a meeting for philanthropists on who will save America's urban Catholic schools. And at the same time, my co-founder, Scott Hamilton, was working on a manuscript of the same title. And so we put our heads together. And I had done Teach for America out of um, Berkeley undergrad. And 
um, had spent all of my time thinking about how do we reform broken district schools and how do we build new charter schools. And I'm Catholic, but I had not gone to Catholic schools. And so it was eye-opening to me to learn that Catholic schools for 200 years had been the opportunity equalizing force in America and um, and also that they were shutting down en masse and that the former um, financial model that allowed Catholic schools to offer a close to free education for the poor um, no longer no longer made sense in a in a climate with um, declining um, vocations and so I actually was having dinner with Scott and I was trying to convince him to do something about this crisis. And he said, well, I'll do it if you do it with me. And so we actually, my older brother's a priest and I, I called him that night and I said, Anthony, I think I know what I'm supposed to do with my life. Call me back. Um, and Seton was born. It was at the height of the recession, which as you might imagine is a great time to start a brand new venture. <laughs> and, um, but really it was a call. And it was a call to try to find a way forward for schools that had really treated children with um, great dignity and um, had really recognized that we're more than just mind and body, we're mind, body, and soul. And that was really important. And so if, if you sort of – you highlight some of these, and I know some of our podcast listeners are probably more familiar with Catholic education than others, but like the problems that Seton is trying to solve. Like what, what were those issues in Catholic education that were causing schools to close or slowing their growth in, in, in the places yeah. that they, they are well, growing? Well, everything but, a, everything but a, a, a horde of locusts essentially. Um, <laughs> The biggest reason is that in the 60s, at the height of Catholic education in America, 95% of the staff were religious brothers, sisters, and priests. Fast forward today, it's fewer than 5%. And so we were essentially funding Catholic education through, if you think about a school, 70% of its operating costs are your people costs. And if you had religious brothers, sisters, and priests staffing schools, you, the church was essentially subsidizing those costs. And without those vocations, we can no longer offer a close to free Catholic education. Um, so if you're in the inner city and you are not happy with the options that the district is providing, um, you have to pay for a Catholic education unless you're in a state with tax credits and vouchers. And so um, that um, that means that if you're not in a state with tax credits and vouchers, you really can't afford a Catholic education. That's led to the decline of our schools. And so now, how many schools are you operating now? So we have two models. Um, we have uh, our blended learning model, which is we don't operate those schools. We partner with those schools. There are existing Catholic schools that have been struggling, and they've typically been struggling financially and academically. And we bring in a robust blended learning model into those schools, and we also spend time working on school culture. And we have 13 of those schools across seven cities. Our other model, which is more controversial, is our charter school wrapped in a faith. Um, in, let's see, 2013, uh, the Archdiocese of New York made the decision to shut down 60 Catholic schools. 
and most of them were K-8 serving underserved kids. A um, bunch of people had asked the Cardinal, what about charter schools? And to his credit, he said, you know what? I don't know enough about them. So I was asked to brief the Cardinal and his auxiliary bishops um, about possibly converting his schools into charter schools. And what I told him was I didn't think he should do that. I thought it was really hard to do effectively and that legally in New York um, it was even more challenging. But that he should partner with an existing charter school that had a strong focus on character and pair it with a daily optional faith formation program for, for, for children. And he was really taken with this idea, and he said, I think you should do this for us. And we originally went out and, and talked to Kip and others, um, but the archdiocese came back to us and said, you know what, we want you to start this from scratch. Um, given that my co-founder was the, the former co-founder of the Kip Foundation, um, he said, okay, we can do this. I've done this before. <laughs> um, definitely not easy to do, but um, with him on my side, um, we were actually able to launch a school called Bria. It means shine in Spanish. And um, we now have three campuses of Bria in the South Bronx. And we are going to be launching five more campuses over the next five years. So now you mentioned that this was controversial, so this is probably worth digging into for a moment. Why, why is this model controversial? Um, because um, it – so we, we got really good legal counsel, and we wanted to make sure that whatever we did didn't cross church-state boundaries. But um, there are many people who are hypersensitive about church-state boundaries. We are too. Um, and many people don't think that you should have – this pairing of um, a secular school with an optional faith-based program. It actually happens in, in many places across the country. You have charter schools that are leasing from former Catholic school, school um, institutions, and the church is offering CCD on Saturdays or CCD sometime during the week after school. And so we just decided to do this in a more robust way. We offer... El Camino, which is the name of the faith formation program, four days a week for students. And so, so I uh, a couple years ago here for EdChoice uh, wrote a report where I and again, as listeners of the podcast may know, I'm a Catholic school homer. I was both educated by and taught in Catholic schools. Um, but we, uh, Andrew Kelly, another researcher, and I wrote this report where we tracked a group of. Catholic schools that had converted to charter schools. So there was a group in Washington, D.C. There was another Mm -hmm. in Florida. There was another here uh, in Indianapolis, Indiana. And I'll tell you, and this is what I'm interested in your response to. So we wrote it just as sort of quasi-disinterested social scientists. And and we used this phrase, converting Catholic schools to charter schools. And we got kind of, we got some flack for that. That a lot of folks in the Catholic school community said, listen, Catholic schools don't convert to charter schools. They close and a and new school opens. So I'm, yeah. I'm just wondering, like, you know, I had the sort of answer as a social scientist, which is, look, we have to put names on things and, and this is it. And we put some language in there explaining it. But I'd be interested how you would respond if someone said, listen, you're not really converting Catholic schools. You are closing Catholic schools and opening charter schools. I think that's the correct way to think about it. Um, you really are closing the school and reopening as a charter. And in our case, we actually did brand new starts. So um, the former Catholic school buildings that we occupy had been empty for four years. 
and we started with kindergartners and first graders. And so we didn't do conversions the way D.C. or Miami or Indianapolis did. Those were shutdowns and startups, but they started up as full schools, unlike um, our model. Um, we've just found that if you start with more than one grade level at a time, it's really hard to do the kind of remediation you need to do for underserved kids. And it's really hard to build strong school culture. And so for us, it was a non-negotiable to start, start from scratch. Yes, that, that's, a, that's an interesting sort of wrinkle in all of this. Because even when we were writing that report, we specifically looked at schools that closed one year and reopened the next year. Um, and and there, are, there are, yeah, and there's lots of cases all around the country where charter schools have come into Catholic school buildings that have been sitting idle for three, four, five years, or sometimes, you know, um, even longer. So I think that that's, that's an important thing. And I know there's a, a story uh, happening now and probably over the course of the next couple months out of Memphis where you have yeah. the, ju- the Jubilee schools that were yeah. forced to close. And I know there'll, there'll probably be lots of conversation about that moving forward. But it's an interesting it, it's a, it's interesting. Go it's a difficult. Yes, so, that's what it, that's what it looks like. Yeah, and I think um, I mean I am praying for them. I hope that they get approved, and I hope I think it's very ambitious to try to start ten charter schools at one time, and so I think they have their work cut out for them. Um, but I'm praying that um, that there's going to continue to be an op an extra option for families who don't find the right option at the district. Sure. So now I'm interested in maybe changing gears slightly and talking about your blended learning model. So we, you have the charter schools wrapped in faith with the, the programming, but then you also have 13 schools that you've partnered with uh, Catholic schools to deliver a kind of blended, uh, blended learning model. Could you maybe talk through that, like from maybe from the students' experience, what, what, what a typical day for them would be like or the types of services that you provide for those schools? Yeah, definitely. Um, so if you think of a traditional, typical Catholic school classroom, you think of a teacher delivering instruction to a group of students. What we do is we actually break the group up into three. And you have a third of the students in small group getting instruction from a teacher. You have a third of the students either working with a TA or um, doing independent work. And then you have a third of the students on computers um, using what is called adaptive software. And that means the software changes based on what the kid puts in. Um, This software has only been really good for the past decade. And we, we just had not made the kind of advances before then in, in adaptive software in education. Um, we had done so in other fields, but not in education. And so what happens is kids get this personalized instruction. And if I go back to my Teach for America days, one of the hardest things to do was to figure out how do you differentiate instruction for a group of kids that are coming to you at such wide, varying levels is the toughest job for a teacher. And so um, technology really enables you to use a teacher um, in in the best ways. And so um, we do that transformation. We do spend time on culture. Um, Schools define their values. Um, They define, you know, what is, what is, what is their school on on its best day? 
um, and they think through how to um, implement a culture that will support that. And so now the kind of uh, all-important question, I mean, insofar as what y'all are doing is trying to make Catholic school more affordable, is this able to bring down the cost of a Catholic education? It is if you do it the right way. So I am one person who will say that there's a lot of blended learning conversation that is not authentically blended learning or that is implemented really poorly, and so you can spend a lot of money and not really do much for kids. But if you do it the right way, what you do is you increase class sizes. So we go up to 28 um, plus in each classroom. And if you increase class sizes without increasing your teaching staff, you're going to reduce your per-pupil per, per operating expenses. Across our network, we've increased enrollment by 30%, which is unheard of in Catholic education. Yeah, absolutely. So are there maybe, uh, you emphasized sort of doing it right or authentic blended learning. Are there, for, for maybe folks who would be sending their children to a school that calls itself blended learning, or there are private school leaders where folks are coming to them and talking to them about blended learning. Are there like two or three differentiators that like when you say this is quality blended learning or this is authentic blended learning, that these are the kind of markers that you would say that's what makes it so? Yeah. I mean, for us at the elementary level, we focus on K-8. Um, it, the small group instruction is really important, so I'd want to see high-quality small group instruction, and then I want to make sure that the software is adaptive and, and is moving with kids because there's a lot of bad software out there, but there's also a lot of really good software out there. Those are the two things I'd look for. That's great. So now I'm a, uh, you know, I'm a policy guy myself. That's been the majority of what my, my research uh, has been on. So I, I'd be sort of interested you operate in different, uh, across different contexts, but also in different states and in different ways. Are there policy barriers that make your life more difficult? Is there stuff that gets in your way? Are there things that vary from state to state that change what you're able to do? Just kind of understanding your relationship to education policy at the local, state, federal level. Yeah. Um, the biggest barrier is, is public funding for private schools. And so the places where we have found the most success, we've done four of these schools in California, and we found success, but the places where we found more success are places with tax credits or vouchers. So we've got four blended learning schools in Cincinnati, one in Milwaukee, one in Philadelphia, um, one in New Orleans. These are places that have really decided to empower parents to choose the best education for their own children. And, um, and so um, that having public funding ch really changes the game for, for families who can't afford a Catholic education. And do you wonder, just sort of speculating here, that if we had more robust private school choice programs, that a lot of these questions around charter schools or charter school conversions would become a lot less salient? Yes. Um, if we had better laws um, when it came to parental choice, um, we would be launching more Catholic schools as opposed to launching charter schools. So now, uh, a question for you uh, across, and it may be different for the different models that you do, but how do you measure success? How do you know that what you're doing is working? Yeah, um, so all of our schools take the NWA map, and the reason we chose NWA map is it's a nationally normed test, and what it does is it measures growth, and it compares um, students across state lines. 
And so we wanted to be able to compare ourselves with KIPP. Um, we saw KIPP as a leader in growth for underserved kids. And also I was partnered with the KIPP guy. And, um, and so uh, every year we get academic growth results on the NWA map that are in parallel or better than KIPP. And um, so that's one way that we measure results. We, we look at enrollment growth. That's the second way we measure results. And for El Camino, um, we look at baptisms. And we also do surveys on church attendance and how often do you pray with your kids. And we've seen just whole families change um, by the introduction of El Camino. So throughout this process, obviously you've had to overcome barriers to get there. I was wondering if you could maybe highlight one or two things that were, if it, if not the hardest thing that you had to overcome in this process, but hurdles you all have had to overcome as you've started and grown. Yeah. So I am a hardcore Catholic and I love the Catholic church. I, um, I have a brother who's a priest. Um, but I would say that our biggest hurdle has been working with the bureaucracy of the Catholic church. And I don't mean that doctrinally. I mean that temporally. Um, the church functions as a bureaucracy and anytime you try to do something new or different um you're met with resistance and so i would say that's been our single biggest hurdle and are there specific issues that they sort of pump the brakes on of what y'all are trying to do um well certainly the charter school work is controversial um because charter schools are seen as competition for catholic schools and rightly or wrongly um and then on the blended side um we um, insist that if there's a change in school leadership, that we have a role in um, in hiring and selecting the new leader. And that's just critically important. If you don't have the right leader, it doesn't matter what blended learning program you have, you're not going to have results for kids. Um, that is very different, flies in the face of a model where a pastor is making all the decisions about leadership. We think there's a vital role for pastors, and it's really as a spiritual leader of the school. But many pastors, and my brother included, will say, you know, I'm not equipped to figure out who the right kind of school leader is for my school. I need, I need some help from an, from an external partner. And that's, you know, an interesting question of teachers and leaders. I mean, this is something across the schools that I talk to on this podcast, a, a reoccurring kind of conversation is how do we get great teachers? How do we get great leaders? So I'd be curious, where do you find your teachers and leaders? Is there a particular training and professional development that you do with them to help get them up to speed? Is it the same kind of teacher preparation programs to get them all from? Just wondering what that sort of pipeline looks like. Yeah, so at our Catholic schools, um, we're going into schools that already have teachers. So we're not, um, we're not really intervening there. At our charter schools, we are a big consumer of Teach for America. Um, we think that they they produce good teachers. And um, we put all of our school leaders through the KIPP Fisher Fellowship Program. Um, we think that they are one of the best um, trainers of new school founders in the country. Um, and so we, we pay a fee to KIPP to have them train our leaders. Um, we also have a program called Seat and Teaching Fellows. Um, so anyone who's got a friend who's going to be graduating from college this year, you should really check this out. Um, it is a year-long commitment to serve in the South Bronx. They teach at the charter school, and then they also teach in the faith formation program. And we recruit from vibrantly Catholic universities. 
um, to find those teachers. And then we give them coaches and um, they live in a faith community. Um, and so uh, that's, we've decided to build our own pipeline. So I want to close with two questions, one kind of looking forward, one looking backwards. So the first would be, what does the next year, the next five year, the next 10 year hold for Seton Education Partners? Yeah, um, it's, it's a good time for Seton Education Partners. We are going to have 20 blended learning schools by 2020. So we'll be launching seven more blended learning schools over the next couple of years. And then we're going to be launching five um, campuses of BRIA over the next five years. And so we're super excited about the growth. I've got a lot of money I've got to raise, but um, it's, I've never had a better job. I imagine. I imagine it's a good, good problems to have. Um, and so then maybe my last question would look in the other direction, which is if you could go back to when all of this got started um, and give yourself some advice, knowing what you know now, what, what advice would you give yourself? Knowing that there are some, you know, maybe some folks who are listening to this podcast who might be thinking about trying to start a school or, or, or get involved in some way. Yeah. Um, so prayer matters. Um, makes a big difference. And so I would say, um, you know, for those of you who are people of faith, make sure that you 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 put the work to prayer on a regular basis. Um, I'd also say that there are going to be a lot of ups and downs and be patient with that. Um, we've had plenty of failures over, over, over the past decade that we've been around. And what's really been important is persevering through those, those, um, those temporary setbacks. Could you maybe just, if, if you're comfortable doing this, one or two, like, is there a particular failure or mistake that you made that you learned from? Oh, I mean, <laughs> how much time do we have? <laughs> I can say we got um, time. So, um, you know, we, we almost launched a campus of Bria in Indianapolis. Um, we weren't able to raise the money that we thought that, 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 that we needed to raise to do the school well, and we had to pull out. It was really brutal. Um, and I, I, I probably look at it as my biggest professional failure um, of my life. And, um, and I, think, I think a couple of things happened, but probably the biggest thing that happened was that we, we were trying to do this school in both New York and in Indianapolis, and it, we had we'd bitten off more than we could chew. And so we had to make a decision between the two sites. We had more support, and, and, and we had raised more money in New York. It's the philanthropic capital of the world. Um, but, um, but it was, it was really hard to actually pull out after we had, um, done, done so much work to, to try to get the school off the ground. Stephanie Soroki de Garcia, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today. Hey, it was my pleasure. Thank you. What a wonderful conversation. I think such an interesting, innovative trying new things, being controversial, wrestling with the issues of the day, um, which is exactly what we're trying to highlight here on this podcast. I will say that, you know, the, the, this question about Catholic schools and charter schools and how they work together or don't work together or um, the, the sort of conversion or divestment or whatever you want to call it will be an ongoing conversation, I would imagine, for the foreseeable future. And definitely watch us here at EdChoice, um, writing about, talking about a lot of the thorny issues that are wrapped up in that. But what an interesting school model. I think trying to introduce blended learning into Catholic schools, which are kind of noted for a traditional form of instruction, 
um, it's really fascinating, and it's such an interesting model to watch. Um, as always, subscribe to the podcast. Not just this podcast, all of the Ed Choice podcasts. We're all you get. It's it's a it's a deal thrown in with this podcast or the other great podcasts that we offer. And I think I said podcast about ten times in that sentence. But that's how much I want you to subscribe. But also make sure to sign up for our email list. You can get content sent directly to you. You can customize your profile so the information just is what you are interested in. And as always, if you have cool schools that you would like me to profile. Hit me up on Twitter. I'm at MQ underscore McShane. Take care. It was great talking with y'all.